You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Good evening, friends. Welcome to the broadcast. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. And I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. So thank you all for tuning in once again for the broadcast, wherever, whenever, and however you're listening. And tonight we have quite a conversation lined up for you, as it is uh, just coming across the newswires here that uh, my home and native land of Canada has recently declared Iran to be the greatest threat to peace and stability in the world, and has subsequently dispelled all the Iranian diplomats from Canada and withdrawn Canadian diplomats from Iran. So... Um, who knows what's coming down the line, but uh, it certainly seems that there is a, uh, a, well, a concerted effort to demonize Iran as much as possible and to not look at the elephant in the room in when it comes to the Middle East and what's going on there, which, of course, is Israel. So tonight we're going to be talking about these types of issues and some of those elephants in the room and exposing what the real threat to stability and peace might be and who the real nuclear power in the region is. And to do that, we're going to be talking to Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy, that is IRMEP, I-R-M-E-P, at IRMEP.org. And of course, the link for that will be in tonight's show notes at CorbettReport.com slash radio. So let's bring him up on the line. Grant Smith, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Lots and lots of news and information to talk about and lots of declassified documents that you yourself have been getting out of uh, the FBI and other organizations for researching uh, your book and, and some of the other things you're working on. Before we get into some of those specific issues, though, uh, IRMEP is, uh, once again, the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. For those people out there in the audience who haven't heard about it before, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about IRMEP and how it came to be. Sure. We launched in early 2003 in a Capitol Hill symposium, bringing together various people to discuss the 1996 Clean Break Plan that was written for Benjamin Netanyahu and whether there was a concerted neoconservative effort to get the U.S. to implement that plan. Uh, since then, uh, we have brought together researchers uh, for various projects, ranging from up to 10 people to one, uh, to study various aspects of U.S. Middle East policy development and really try and peek behind the curtain and see how policy is really formulated in Washington, D.C. And so document declassification uh, about major issues such as the Israeli nuclear weapons program, uh, arms transfers, policy development, the major lobbies that are involved in policy formulation. All of those things uh, are an intense focus to our research. And you yourself have been involved with IRMEP since its beginning then? Yeah, absolutely. I've been involved in research all my career, beginning um, in market research, doing international research, doing various types of directed market studies. But uh, in terms of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy, I am the founder. 
Absolutely. Well, tons of information coming out of ermep.org, so I hope people will check it out if they haven't done so before. And tonight we're going to be talking about a wide range of subjects, but probably focusing quite a bit on some very interesting stories to come out of your investigations into the Israeli nuclear smuggling ring that has that was operating in the U.S., certainly there in the 1960s, and uh, that really helped to get the Israeli nuclear program underway by getting its hands on U.S. weapons-grade uh, nuclear material and nuclear Crytron parts uh, and others, other such uh, things will be, of course, telling you all about these types of things and, uh, and getting some of the uh, uh, background to these stories. But uh, right now, let's take a short break. If, uh, if you're online at the moment, perhaps you want to go to ermap.org and start taking a look at some of the uh, stories that are posted up there. But uh, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back once again talking to Grant F. Smith about ermap.org. So we'll be back right after this. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Grant F. Smith, the director of IRMEP, the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy, IRMEP.org. And we're going to be getting into some of the nuclear secrets of Israel, um, which, of course, is not an officially declared nuclear power, and it is not a signatory to the NPT, unlike Iran, which uh, is a signatory and which is complying with the IAEA in multiple respects, but is still being declared the biggest threat to peace and stability on the planet by the Canadian government and many others. And the Canadian government even declaring it a state sponsor of terror now and uh, refusing to have anything to do with it diplomatically. So there seems to be a double standard in, uh, in relations in the Middle East from the major Western powers. So let's start exploring some of the issues that are not being reported anywhere in the mainstream media. Surprise, surprise. And one of the big ones that really came across the, uh, the, the news wires for those who were paying attention back in July was a story broken by Ermep and Grant Smith. And I believe this is in relation to the work that you've been doing for some time, and some of which has ended up in books such as Divert, Numek, Zalman Shapiro, and the Diversion of U.S. Weapons-Grade Uranium into the Israeli Nuclear Weapons Program, which is the title and a half. And that is available uh, from Amazon and other places, so I will put the, that link in uh, the show notes for tonight's episode as well. But let's start talking about some of the uh, the documents that you've gotten out of this investigation, and specifically I want to start with a an explosive story that unfortunately Unfortunately, we haven't heard of from any mainstream sources. This is Netanyahu worked inside nuclear smuggling ring. Tell us about the documents you found and what they've exposed. Sure. Well, you absolutely guessed right. Um, we've been declassifying documents about smuggling fronts uh, for years and years, and they don't always come out in time for the book publications. But Basically, our study of conventional weapons smuggling that started off in the late 40s going after World War II surplus, uh, companies like MarTech, Service Airways, uh, Materials for Palestine, we brought that into the nuclear age by looking at front companies that were going after nuclear materials. Of course, there weren't as many companies doing that because... Uh, it's a much more concentrated effort. But uh, the work that we were doing uh, to look at the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation and MILCO are very related, 
and theology, I should mention, is a recent day one. Uh, in, in terms of the FBI uncovering a multi-node network, this one happened to be centered in California. Uh, Milco was a company that was incorporated in 1972 uh, by a man by Richard uh, named Richard Kelly Smythe, who, when he was discovered sending 800 Krytrons, which are dual-use items that could be used to trigger nuclear weapons, uh, when he was discovered doing that, he skipped bail in the mid-1980s and disappeared until he was picked up by Interpol in the early part uh, of 2000. And so the story is interesting and explosive because after multiple attempts at denials, we had a, a document release uh, in which uh, the key contacts, or one of the key contacts that Smythe was meeting with to set up sales uh, in Israel it was none other than Benjamin and Yahoo. And so the document which I'm kind of holding up right here for the people who are on video, uh, actually names Benjamin Netanyahu as being an employee of Heli Trading Company, which was the node in Israel that would receive Ministry of Defense requisitions that they would pass on to Milko. And so the interesting thing about this, of course, is the high-profile nature of Benjamin Netanyahu the fact that the smuggling ring ringleader um, has been identified as Arnon Milchan, a person any American knows for his movie productions such as Pretty Woman uh, and other favorites, uh, who is running this and who uh, a recent book has named as being a top economic espionage fly f- a spy for Lacom, who worked under Benjamin Bloomberg and Raphael Eaton. Uh, but the FBI document that we published on July 4 related to an antiwar.com story uh, was really short and direct. And, and its core focus was on the fact that in a period when Netanyahu was building himself up as a leader in the terrorism industry, hosting major conferences, having just returned from his studies in the United States, hosting major conferences – uh, in the Jonathan um, Netanyahu Terrorism Institute, named after his brother who was killed on the raid on Entebbe. Here's a, here's a person who uh, was supposed to be working as a furniture company executive, and yet these documents, which are very credible because of what they were, which is testimony from Richard Kelly Smith after he was returned from his uh, exile overseas and finally forced to uh, serve a prison sentence, these were the statements that he made to FBI agents in a district attorney office uh, when they debriefed him and wanted to know what the extent of the nuclear technology smuggling network was. And boom, there's Benjamin Netanyahu. Pretty explosive stuff. Um, and what, what, if any, indication is there from what the FBI did or didn't actually do with this knowledge that they acquired from Richard Kelly Smith? Well... What they did was that they discovered just how connected the U.S. operatives were. Um, in the terms of Richard Kelly Smith, after they debriefed him, he was sentenced to a much reduced sentence. He was facing over a 100 years in prison for having shipped uh, under false pretenses and without the proper export licenses, 800 Krytrons uh, Israel. Uh, Israel clearly needed this type of technology only five years before it had been offering to sell 
nuclear-tipped Jericho missiles to apartheid South Africa, according to Sasha Polakow-Saransky's work. And so there was a real need for this type of technology. The FBI, however, spent a great deal of its investigation trying to figure out uh, whether they could do anything about Arnon Milchan. And they have an entry from Who's Who in America. They have testimony about his uh, different uh, stars and movie producers that he was familiar with. And so while they made a valiant effort to crack Richard Kelly Smythe uh, into fingering Milchan and, and bringing him down, in the end... They simply shut down the investigation. And anybody who looks at files having to do with uh, this sort of thing understands that the Justice Department is usually very reticent to prosecute a case uh, that goes so high uh, in terms of the Israeli government or U.S. Uh, figures of this stature. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately so. So, of course, nothing really resulted from the Netanyahu connection, and I'm assuming they never really followed up on that, or, or there are no documents well, that you have on that. In terms of the documents, um, you know, they clearly named Netanyahu, but at this particular time, it's important to remember um, just how close Netanyahu was becoming to the U.S. government. We're talking about kind of smack dab in the middle of the Iran-Contra scandal. We're talking about a time right after the 1979 Iranian Revolution when Israel lost its greatest friend in the Middle East, where it was getting its oil and, and uh, doing all sorts of economic development with the Shah. And this is the, the period in time when U.S. economic relations with Israel were coming closer. So um, Netanyahu was interesting because he quickly became uh, untouchable. He, in this period of time, after he was forming his credentials as kind of a terrorism guru, uh, became the assistant to the U.S. ambassador in Washington, D.C. So suddenly he had diplomatic immunity. And again, the window is really interesting. 1980 to 1982 is when the Krypons were shipped to Israel. By 1982, he's working in Washington, D.C. with a lot more immunity than Richard Kelly Smythe had, which is why he fled the United States. Interesting stuff. So let's just get cl uh, some clarification on uh, on Netanyahu's role. He was the Israeli uh, end of this smuggling node, working for or working with Heli Trading Company. What what was this, and what were they doing in this uh, scheme? Well, Heli Trading Company was one of a, a single company within the Milchan Brothers conglomerate, which was started as I believe I mentioned in 1950, as kind of an importer of pesticides and agricultural chemicals, but then had a lot of different businesses and different industries, including arms. And so we're talking about multi-multi-million dollar companies. Um, in terms of his resume, Netanyahu has never been named as working at this company uh, and yet the person uh, who was most directly responsible for sending the nuclear triggers to Israel says that this was his man, this was his contact in Heli Trading. And so it appears as though during a period of his life when he may have been, you know, working at a furniture company or that was perhaps a cover, uh, some sort of cover for other activities – but at the same time, he's becoming a terrorism guru. Netanyahu is also the key contact for this particular project. And, you know, his patrons in terms of politics, naming him to become 
uh, ambassador to the UN and all of these other positions was Shimon Peres, who of course is the grandfather of the Israeli nuclear weapons program. So I don't find it troubling at all that he would have been named as a contact. Obviously, Smythe coming from the United States would encounter Netanyahu, who had, you know, been studying at MIT and spending so many years of his of his life in the U.S. to be a very comfortable interface, and I think that would have been the purpose, somebody who is knowledgeable, moving up. But he also mentions the fact that uh, he was introduced to Prime Minister Sharon. I mean, it's misspelled in the FBI document, but he was brought around to people so that he could be sure, I believe, uh, that he was dealing with high-level needs and that they would have his back. Which, of course, they didn't in the end. Exactly, of course. So, a very interesting story, and I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that he was meeting people who would later go on to become such important political figures, given the role that they were playing in this extremely sensitive operation. Well, let's uh, leave it there. We're coming up against another break. When we come back, we'll continue talking to Grant F. Smith of ermep.org about the secret Israeli nuclear smuggling ring in the United States and uh, all the documents that back it up. Okay, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And tonight we're talking to our guest, Grant F. Smith of Ermep.org, about the Israeli nuclear smuggling ring of which Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, was fingered as being a, a part of that ring. A very, very interesting story. And before the break, we were talking about some of the elements of this particular part of the story and the 800 Krytron nuclear triggers that were part of this uh, this whole scandal. But uh, you did mention that these triggers were dual use and that one of their uses could be to, as a nuclear triggering device. Is there any indication that we have that this these Krytrons could have possibly been used for anything other than nuclear triggers? Well, that's the question that immediately surfaced in 1985. And Arnon Milchan had the chance to respond to uh, Tom Friedman's pointed questions in a New York Times article. And he mentioned the fact that, uh, and Israel uh, as well, the government formally denied that they had any intentions of using them for nuclear purposes. And so uh, Arnon Milchan went as far to posit that they could be used as timers to heat uh, cholent, which is a bean stew on the Sabbath, and and Tom Friedman very graciously let him make that argument. But the bottom line is, it was not a soup kitchen that was asking for these particular items. It was the Ministry of Defense, and the FBI paper trail and later reporting clearly led through you know Milko, Heli, Milchan brothers, right back to the Ministry of Defense. And so, given the means, motive, and opportunity of this particular acquisition project and the fact that they didn't want to give them back, uh, subsequent news reports uh, have the State Department and the United States formally trying to get the things back uh, with little success. I tend to think that uh, the reason that they took the chances to file false export declarations was that they really needed them and that if they'd wanted to simply acquire some soup timers, they could have gotten conventional technologies for that. One would think so. There's probably easier ways to go about getting uh, soup uh, uh, warmers going. Um, just to clarify for people out there who are wondering, all of these documents are available for download from the ERMEP site? They are. In fact, it's the, the site has got thousands and thousands of PDF 
documents, some of, you know, most of which have never seen the light of day that we were the first ones to declassify. And as you mentioned, this covers economic espionage, nuclear smuggling. It covers uh, clandestine activities to lobbying for trade agreements. Uh, and so if people go uh, simply Google Israel Lobby Archive, they'll be able to see all of these documents. Usually there's an image and a quote from one of the declassified documents to some context about what it's talking about. But they go, they cover a period from the 1930s all the way to the present. Well, let's talk about the way that this story, this explosive story, really, about Benjamin Netanyahu has been received in the American media, or more properly, has not been received. Yeah, well, it's uh, not been received. In fact, uh, I... Uh, dialed into the Diane Reem show, which is a giant uh, public policy uh, show that's syndicated on national public radio, and it was as though I dried an elephant carcass onto the set. Uh, they shut me down so fast uh, and threw me off, it left my head spinning. And so um, there's, you know, the story is out there. It's The files have been sent to the New York Times, the Washington Post. We put out a, a PR Newswire press release. Uh, and the only outlets that have bothered to cover it have been Israeli National News, uh, the Israeli version of the Wall Street Journal, and some prominent U.S. blogs, and that is absolutely it. There, this is, I, I, I think, uh, this is so far outside the framework uh, that nobody wants to deal with it. And again, your listeners uh, <laughs> probably understand that that's, uh, there, there are many stories like that, particularly now. It's so sad that this isn't surprising in any way that uh, this, this type of story isn't getting any traction, but it does just go so counter to the uh, narrative that's being put out there right now about Iran, and the Iran being the root of all evil and the root of all nuclear evil in the region, that, uh, that anything that goes against that in terms of what Israel has just can't be reported on. So unfortunately, nothing new there, I guess, nothing surprising from, from your perspective, right? No, and this isn't the first time, uh, but, you know, some stories that we've put out, they have made it into the Washington Post. Um, this one, you know, it would require some efforts, it would probably require some verification uh, on the part of these. I, I hope, I'm still holding out hope that uh, these organizations will contextualize it, but the Washington Post recently ran a long piece uh, from their ombudsman, which, uh, if you read it carefully, justifies why they don't want to talk about the Israeli nuclear weapons program. And it has a lot to do with maintaining uh, the uh, strategic ambiguity and, and not wanting to out a friend, as the ombudsman said. And so, you know, in, in, there were thousands and thousands of comments on the page calling them out on that. Uh, but I think they're going to close ranks and hold firm because if people really understood uh, that what what's being asked is to preserve the nuclear hegemony of one particular country in the region, they probably wouldn't accept most of the rest of the argument, particularly when they find out the main person making it actually targeted the U.S. for some of his arsenal. 
Exactly right. All the all the news that's fit to print, unless it exposes Israel's nuclear program, I guess. Um, just a ridiculous state of affairs, considering it is not a secret anymore, and everyone knows about it. But there you go. That's the state we're in. Well, let's leave it there again, coming up against a break. We're talking to Grant F. Smith. If you'd like to get in on tonight's conversation, the phone lines will be open 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. That's irmep.org, I-R-M-E-P dot O-R-G. We'll take you there where you can find all of these articles and the, the declassified documents that we're talking about tonight as we start uncovering the various smuggling rings and other things that Israel has been involved in over the years uh, directed against the United States, not that you'll find any of this reported on in the U.S. media. So let's start taking a look at, uh, at the bigger, bigger picture of what's happening here, because of course the Netanyahu angle is only one small piece of a much bigger puzzle, and one that, as I say, you've been working on for your book, Divert Numek Zalman Shapiro and the Diversion of U.S. Weapons-Grade Uranium into the Israeli Nuclear Weapons Program which is available for purchase online, and I hope people will take a look at it. But let's let's start talking about this prob- pro- the problem generally, who, what NUMEC was, who Zelman Shapiro was, and how this all originated. Sure. Well, Zalman Shapiro was a really talented chemist who worked on the Nautilus nuclear submarine program for Admiral Hyman Rickover back in the late 1950s. And during this time the vision for Atoms for Peace was beginning to kick off, and the idea of having private companies run nuclear-related industries came into legislative possibility. So Zalman Shapiro, uh, under the guidance of a venture capitalist who had been an Israeli smuggler, put together a... Uh, nuclear fuel processing plant to sell fuel to the nuclear navy in a facility they acquired for $500 in Apollo, Pennsylvania. It was an old steel mill and began receiving a steady stream of highly enriched U-235 to process into submarine fuel. Uh, the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation was severely undercapitalized. They had horrible facilities, numerous fires, uh, all sorts of spills and chemical um, uh, fires. And it became uh, apparent by 1964 and 1965 that somehow they had managed to lose vast quantities of U-235. And so there began an investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which took place uh, until the early 70s and then was relaunched in 1978 to 1980 uh, to find out what had happened to the weapons-grade uranium. The investigation files are fascinating. People who don't want to buy the book can certainly look at all of these interview files where FBI agents are crawling all over the plant uh, and beginning to uncover the corporate history of NUMEC. The fact that NUMEC set up a joint venture called ISORAD 
with the Israeli Atomic Energy Commission. The Israeli Atomic Energy Commission, uh, in terms of the research uh, of Abner Cohen, a real expert on the Israeli nuclear weapons program, was simply a front for the Israeli nuclear weapons program. And all sorts of key figures of the Israeli nuclear weapons program, such as Abraham Hermoni, were constantly visiting the plant. Uh, Rafael Eaton, the famed uh, Israeli spy who snatched uh, Nazi war criminals off the streets of Buenos Aires and later ran Jonathan Pollard against the United States, visited the plant with an operations team uh, in 1968. And so this plant was constantly losing weapons-grade uranium, and the Atomic Energy Commission finally engineered the ouster of Zalman Shapiro by having another company take it over at a substantial loss uh, and let Shapiro go into another industry. Um, so the story is fascinating because during the Ford administration, Congress was under a lot of pressure by constituents and others to explain what had happened to all the missing uranium. In the early 1970s, Henry Kissinger mentions in a formal report that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the material was shipped to Israel, uh, that it had been mounted on one of the new missiles that they were putting together, ballistic missiles. And so the paper trail is fascinating uh, I would say every bit as much as fascinating as the inability of the government to take any concrete action. They had numerous possibilities for uh, putting a polygraph on Zalman Shapiro since he had security clearances. They had numerous opportunities to cut to the chase and use CIA assets overseas to find out various things. And they did find uranium of the signature of that which was shipped to Numec in Israel uh, by the late 1970s. But in every key moment, there was a change in presidential administration or the loss of this attorney general or the FBI didn't want to deal with it anymore. So that even by 1980, when they have, as the documents on the IRMEP.org website show, an eyewitness, an employee who witnessed Zalman Shapiro loading HEU containers into equipment for shipment to Israel, even though they had that eyewitness testimony, they couldn't proceed with any type of investigation because the Carter administration was winding down. Uh, they had a huge file on NUMAC by that time, but there's no indication that they handed it over to the Reagan administration for further prosecution. And so it's a really interesting time period, and it's clear to people uh, who are experts who have reviewed the losses at the NUMAC plant, uh, such as uh, Victor Galinsky, uh, who wrote an article for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists called Revisiting the Numac Affair, it's obvious to him and any serious person who looked at the people in the plant and their backgrounds and all of this evidence that there was a diversion, and yet there was never any accountability. And today people only know Numac in Apollo, Pennsylvania, because it's the site of a cleanup that could cost American taxpayers up to a half a billion dollars. 
That's right. I mean, there's so many different aspects to this story, but it seems to me that this is the type of system that was set up to fail from the beginning. It, it brings to my mind why the the Navy would have to contract out to this private firm in, to get their fuel processing done in the first place. Cer- certainly the Navy had their own fuel reprocessing centers or were able to do that type of thing. They certainly could have kept private industry and Zalman Shapiro in particular with his, you know, tiny facility out of the stream of uh, uranium, particularly weapons-grade uranium. But the mandate at this period of time was to jumpstart private industry and get processors into the business, not only for Navy fuel, but for civilian fuel as well. Uh, So the Atomic Energy Commission had this dual mandate of regulating an industry which was, you know, full of safeguards problems and also promoting it at the same time. And they were so bad at it and had so many conflicts of interest that they were abolished and and we formed the Nuclear uh, Regulatory Commission and and, and split up the functions. But uh, you're right, it didn't have to happen. Um, But the wrong people were in the right place at the right time and over a 10-year period managed to get their hands on enough weapons-grade uranium for dozens of simple gun-type weapons or advanced weapons. Do we we have an idea how much material went missing from the Apollo site? uh, The estimates, uh, I don't have the figure in front of me, but it's north of 500 pounds um, it's a it's an amount that if you look at the um, if you look at the amount as a percentage of the loss is two percent of all the material that went through the plant while Zalman Shapiro was there it only declined to industry standard losses after he had left. Um, and industry the, standards about point two percent. Yeah, about two point two percent. So the actual uh, quantity. Uh, according to a Department of Energy 2001 study, the most recent audit um, was you know, a substantial amount. Um, I, I don't have the I don't have the exact figure in front of me though. I'll find it in a moment. Well, uh, there's just so much to get into with this story, but but let's clarify. So there is no smoking gun per se definitively linking Shapiro and Numek to shipping this to Israel, but we have lots of pieces of the pie there, and we have eyewitnesses and others that, that have come forward over the years, and t- together it makes a, a quite a compelling case. Right. It's 337 kilograms of material. Um, I've, I've positioned this as uh, no smoking gun, but all smoking shell casings which lead from Apollo, Pennsylvania to Demona. And, and when I say that, uh, it's referencing the CIA station chief who characterized Numek as an Israeli operation from the beginning. It's co- um, uh, commenting on uh, Carl Duckett, and we've got some leaked CIA, CIA documents from Carl Duckett who said, uh, that he believed that there was a diversion from Numac, although he didn't know about Zalman's culpability. Uh, and, you know, again, the fact that uh, the material um, shipping port, or excuse me, uh, uranium, uh, which was specially designated for the Numac plant, was picked up in Israel by some clandestine services. Uh, all of that, to me... Uh, points to the fact that there was a diversion. Now, Zalman Shapiro denies it, 
Um, and in terms of the many civil lawsuits that are currently underway trying to uh, get damage settlements and health settlements, nobody has gone after uh, Zalman Shapiro or the Israeli government. Um, but there are also a large number of the most sensitive documents that are still classified being held by the LBJ Library, the Ford Library, and the Carter Library of the National Archives and Record Administration. And so what has happened is that as time has passed, the evidence for diversion has been stacking up much faster than the evidence uh, for no diversion. Well, a lot to go into, but there's some callers on the line, obviously generating some some interest in this uh, this conversation. So let's get some of your views uh, in. Once again, if you want to get in, one eight hundred three one three nine four four three. But let's go to Bill in Idaho. Bill, thanks for waiting on the line. Excellent work as usual, gentlemen. Very much appreciated. Hopefully, the sleeping Christian church, the Judeo Christian church in. Uh, America will hear this any more than that foolish and, I feel, ill-willed comment out, out of the DNC most recently. But uh, on page uh, 193 of uh, uh, Sword and Shield, uh, uh, the thir- uh, second, third paragraph on uh, 193, uh, this, the case also stoked Shamir's virulent anti-Americanism rooted in a fixed belief that the United States was particularly responsible for the Holocaust. There were claims that he believed that the President Roosevelt should have come to an arrangement, quote-unquote, one of Shamir's favorite words with Hitler, to replace Britain, then to dominate power, in the Middle East, then the dominant power in the Middle East, with the Third Reich. In turn, Hitler would have allowed uh, the Jews to travel to Palestine, thus and therefore the Holocaust would never have happened. I can't, I can't, I can't thank you enough, and I'm hoping that this gets repeated any number of times. The excellent research, but going back to the discussion of uh, New Mech and Wisconsin, the particular time frame that you're describing from, what, late 60s into the 80s and 90s, remember, it was Gerald Ford that, in concert with Mr. Cheney and Mr. Rumsfeld that covered up who murdered Frank Olson, a very, very important intelligence story never discussed out of the San Jose Mercury News and yet covers more than one presidency. If that doesn't wake up the sleeping church, I assume nothing will. Well, the and Frank Olson thank- story is is fascinating. So, Bill, thank you for that call. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. Thank but you. we have another caller on the line. We have Eric in Michigan, so let's bring him up. Eric, thanks for call, uh, calling tonight. Hi there. I remember uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, or as I say, Netanyahu, appearing on the Sean Insanity program, radio program, uh, a year or so before. 9-11, and he made this really gracious statement, uh, schmirkish, that if Americans refuse to take seriously the plight of their Zionist brethren in Israel, uh, that is, the terrorist uh, threats against them, that 
terrorism would come to America. Kind of like the PNAC hmm. uh, proclamation of, uh, of Paul Wolfowitz. And Janie and others. Yeah. yeah, that we need a new Pearl Harbor or a new global American empire. But, of course, we have to enlist the highly esteemed and celebrated uh, uh, Judeo-Christianic evangelical community, the moral, or shall I say, the moral minority, uh, and of course the, the his eminence, uh, the anus Pat Robertson. How else could the Israeli Mossad operative Bush Laden crime family have been elected? And also, I want to ask your guest. If he's aware of a retired British intelligence officer, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock, who authored The Synagogue of Satan, because what your guest is uh, describing tonight is actually described in this book. And it all leads back to the infamous Rothschild, uh, that means red sign, and strangely, their emblem, the six, was it the hexagram, the Star of David? Uh, which, uh, according to some, uh, translates into 666. Everything I thought it was the three arrows, back, but, you know, um, or the seems to, five arrows. seems to connect to the Rothschild family. And, in fact... Uh, All right, well, well, Eric, we're, are, we're coming up against the break, so let's put that question to Grant Smith. Are you familiar with that book and the work? Um, I'm not familiar with that, no, I'm afraid. But, um, you know, th- this constant theme of, oh, bad things can happen if the United States doesn't act is a recurring theme. And it's not just PNAC and Netanyahu. Even back in 1961, Senator J.W. Fulbright held a very serious meeting and drafted a memo saying that he was going to look into things happening overseas, like the Levant affair, which were affecting U.S. policy. And so it's a recurring theme, and uh, that's a very interesting point. Unfortunately, it happens too often. Eric, we're going to have to leave it there. We're up against the break. Thank you for the call. Thank you also to Bill. And let's take a short breather, and when we come back, we'll wrap things up with Grant F. Smith of ermap.org. So hang on right there. We'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Once again, you have been tuned into Corporate Report Radio, and we have been talking to Grant F. Smith tonight of ermep.org. That's I-R-M-E-P dot O-R-G. Once again, the link to that will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio for those of you who have missed it. But uh, let's just wrap things up here. Grant, I mean, there's there's so many things talk, to talk about and so many different issues, but so many of them come back to what is happening right now and the specter of war with Iran that uh, we've been hearing about for so many years. And once again, we seem to be in a round of inflated rhetoric and uh, the possibility that Israel might launch some sort of strike and uh, get the U.S. to go along with it. So what is your take on what's happening right now and the prospect for uh, a strike on Iran before the election? Well, I, I think the the issue is something everybody should be thinking about, but they should be thinking about it in the following terms. Uh, Israel has a very sophisticated nuclear arsenal, and that includes submarine-based launchable missiles. It includes, of course, things that can be launched by air and ground. 
And so one of the problems with the debate is that because we're so dishonest and because of strategic ambiguity where the U.S. presidents uh, won't answer direct questions about the Israeli nuclear arsenal, uh, there's no debate about whether the Israelis are uh, willing to go nuclear against Iran, which is probably the only way they actually could take out all of the facilities that they would need to take out. Uh, and so I think that that's an issue that serious people uh, would be discussing uh, because the analysis that uh, most impresses me is that they don't have conventional capabilities for actually doing any significant damage. And so that's one issue. And then the other issue is, well, uh, what can the Israelis do to the United States? Because the big reason that the arsenal exists in the first place, or at least the CIA thought this, would, back in the 1961 period, they thought that it would help the Israelis avoid any sort of settlement that would cost them vis-a-vis the Palestinians. I think we're in the same situation the Israelis, because they have this vast and growing uh, arsenal in terms of deployed weapons, can say to the United States continually that we need to do their dirty work for them or because all they have uh, really is a credible threat is their nuclear weapons. And so the United States, if it doesn't want to see that, will have to attack Iran with conventional forces. So... Um, the Israeli nuclear arsenal question is key. And, uh, you know, aside from the fact that I don't personally believe the Iranians, uh, based on my analysis and work, are actually developing a nuclear arsenal, um, the, the question really is, what is the U.S. being coerced into doing? And so, you know, that, of course, that knowledge of Israel's arsenal, if it were more widespread, would utterly change the, the debate. And I think Americans in particular would become very resentful about how that arsenal was put together at their ongoing expense. Uh, so that's probably one of the biggest reasons that the lobby works very hard to keep a lid on this argument. Absolutely right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, but just quickly, just throw out the website one more time and tell people what they can find there. IRMEP.org and look for the Israel Lobby Archive. Excellent. A ton of information, so I hope people will make use of that archive. So once again, Grant F. Smith, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. All right, friends, that's it for me tonight here on Corbett Report Radio. But, of course, we'll be back next Monday, same time, same channel. So I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week. Until then, thank you all for listening, and take care. Let's take you